0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Today's the first time on a Sunday morning I've ever preached a sermon in a t-shirt and in tennis Runners. But today is the first Sunday that Grace Church has ever had a vacation Bible school. And so that's right. So it is most appropriate, gr- glorious events call for glorious attire. And so I'm decked out in my VBS shirt, and uh, so yes, thank you very much. Thanks for, all I did was put on the shirt. Some people have spent hours planning and preparing and will give hours this week of uh, of serving. And uh, so... Uh, Thank you for everyone who's investing in what will be a great week. So uh, anyway, I I, uh, just had to wear it. It was given to me, and I just had to wear it as a celebration of what's happening this week. Philippians 1. Today we finish up uh, the end of chapter 1 with verses 27 through 30. Next week we'll jump into chapter 2. Here we go. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we gather here today as those who need a word from you. Lord, we can't live off what we heard last Sunday or what we read in our Bible yesterday. Lord, we want to hear freshly from you every day and every Sunday that we gather. And we pray that you would just speak to us clearly through this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give me the grace to declare this passage such that it has the effect of emboldening us all. I pray that you would grant us a boldness when facing opposition, a boldness when suffering a boldness and integrity in walking faithfully with you and for you as a citizen of your heavenly kingdom. And we ask these things that you would come, Spirit of God, now and teach us and give us vision and faith and action, Lord, to follow you in response to what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Philippians 1 has been an interesting study because the entire first chapter has really been Paul sharing his own life. He's sharing from his own struggles, his own challenge, his own uh, suffering. He's in a prison. He's imprisoned for his faith and he's writing to this church that he dearly loves. And so what he's done so far is he has encouraged the Philippian church by his example. He has shown them from his own life what it means to love God's people as he speaks to these uh, Philippians with such affection, telling them that he yearns for them uh, with the heart of Christ, that his, his heart is for them, with them, toward them. Uh, it's really just phenomenal, his heart of love. Uh, he talks about living out his purpose in life and how he's making the most of any situation in life or in death, whether he, he's facing, uh, he's, standing, he's waiting to stand before trial before Caesar, and he may face death for his faith. And he's showing them that no matter what happens, life or death, he wants to make much of Christ. He, he talks about the fact that he wants to, he wants to live. He'd rather die because he'd go to be with Jesus. But he's wanting to live so that he can help this church, so that he can serve them, so that he can write them and help them and, and be with them. He's making a decision. He wants to live so that, so that he can help them progress in their faith and so that he can help them experience joy in their faith. And so this is all what Paul has is, is been writing. Here's what he's enduring in prison. He's writing to his dear friends, telling them what he's experiencing in prison. And now, starting in the passage we just read today, he's going to begin to instruct them in the midst of their own challenges, and he's going to be helping them. And he does it in verse 27. This is the theme, really, for this this passage. And in some ways, this is the theme for the rest of the book. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Friday I was uh, on the patio and I was grilling, it was 4th of July, that was the appropriate thing to do, so I was grilling, had some burgers and dogs on the grill, and I had uh, a speaker outside and I was streaming Pandora, and uh, Pandora had a 4th of July, uh, or as they say in Texas, the 4th of July, uh, they had a 4th of July uh, station. And so they were just playing songs about celebrating America. So I'm out there playing, and it's just the stock stuff, you know, Springsteen's Born in the USA, and these kind of songs. So I'm just standing out there grilling, playing the uh, America songs on the 4th of July. It's just, it's, it's the moment, you know, it's the American moment. And my three-year-old grandson walks out on the patio, and uh, he looks over at the speaker, and he says to me, uh, Pops, is this a Jesus song? And uh, that means a worship song. He calls any song that's a worship song a Jesus song. He said, is this a Jesus song? And I said, no, this is not a Jesus song. Uh, It's a song about America. And uh, it's good to sing songs about America, but Jesus songs are the best, is what I told him. And in that moment, I realized that I was making a comment about my identity that is the exact idea that Paul brings up in this passage. Because what I was telling him is that, uh, well, I wasn't telling him all this, but th- this, is the, this is the truth of the matter. I am a citizen of the United States, and I am a grateful American, and I was, on this Fourth of July weekend, uh, grilling and listening to America music, acting like an American does on Independence Day. But my highest allegiance, my deepest allegiance is to another king, another realm, another kingdom, and that is to Christ. That is my greatest allegiance. So I was communicating to him that right now I'm acting like an American, playing the music, celebrating, grilling, having a day off, all that kind of stuff. But, I'm, I'm, but my ultimate behavior is to reflect a higher citizenship. Without denigrating my national citizenship at all, my, my life is about a higher citizenship. It's about citizenship and allegiance, citizenship in the kingdom and allegiance to Christ. And that is the point that Paul makes here. When he writes, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, this phrase, let your manner of life be worthy, uh, let your manner of life be, this phrase, let your manner of life be, is one Greek word. It's just one word. Let your manner of life be. It's one Greek word, and at the heart of it is the word citizen. Uh, a more literal translation, but it doesn't make as much sense. But a more literal translation of this would be: uh, l- it would be uh, literally to say, "Live as a citizen." of the gospel of Christ. Live as a citizen of the good news of Christ. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Live as a citizen of the good news of Christ to us. And so the the translators have said, let your conduct or let your manner of life be. Act like a citizen of the the, uh, good news. Let your lifestyle reflect the good news. Now, Paul is going to say the same thing later in the letter. If you look over in chapter 3, verse 20, he says there, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So his point is, Philippians live as a citizen of the good news of Jesus. Now, why does he talk this way? Because that's an unusual way to speak. We don't normally talk that way. Why does he say, be a citizen of the good news? Because that connects, much like it does with us on a Fourth of July weekend, that connects with the Philippians, They lived uh, under Roman rule, and citizenship was a really, really big thing in the Roman Empire. Everyone who lived in the Roman Empire was not a citizen uh, of Rome. It was a privileged status that not everyone had. So uh, initially, uh, citizens all lived in Rome, and then the connecting Areas around Rome in Italy, people could become Roman citizens. And as Rome grew in power and began to colonize other areas, uh, other areas, and Philippi is a Roman colony, other areas began to have Roman citizens in them. But to gain citizenship, you had to provide some service for Rome. Some people could buy citizenship. Uh, maybe legitimately or on the black market. But some people could buy citizenship, but basically to get citizenship, there, there had to be some kind of service offered uh, to Rome. So the most common way a person became a citizen was to enlist in military service for Rome. And Philippi actually is filled with retired uh, retired Roman uh, military uh, guys. There probably weren't r- military women in that day, but r- military guys. And so there is a great pride in being a Roman citizen. Not everyone is, is this. Um, there is a great allegiance to Rome. There is a great allegiance to the emperor. As a matter of fact, it was common that the emperor in the first century in Rome was worshipped, actually worshipped, incense burned to uh, an image of the emperor. They worshipped a lot of gods, but the emperor was one of them. Now, aren't you grateful we don't live in a kind of world that forces that kind of thing? Uh, You can like the president. You can dislike the president. You can speak freely how you want in our country. There, you had to worship the president. And at some points uh, after this, there was actually persecution for Christians who wouldn't participate in emperor worship. So there's this great pride. And citizens had this had benefits. There came benefits for being a citizen. For instance, you didn't have to pay all the taxes that non-citizens had to pay. Also, if you're a Roman citizen, you were given due process under the law. If you were not a Roman citizen, you were often just subject to the ruler and what they wanted to do, the local magistrate. So you remember in reading about Paul last year in the book of Acts, there's a time where he uh, actually tells them that he's a citizen so that he's not beaten because they couldn't just arrest Paul and beat him without giving him a trial as a Roman citizen. So he was a Roman citizen himself. But being a citizen also came with responsibilities. It was an honor to be a citizen uh, of Rome. Uh, There were obligations that went with it. And one was to uphold the dignity of the empire. People who were Roman citizens lived with a certain pride and a certain dignity in the greatness of the Roman Empire and a certain allegiance and loyalty to the emperor. And so they lived with this awareness of their citizenship. Now, Paul doesn't denigrate Roman citizenship, but he takes that context, that idea, that mindset that was in first century Philippi, the people he's writing to, he takes that context and he, he, without denigrating their citizenship, he elevates citizenship in the kingdom. And And he says this to them, make sure your lives are worthy of the good news of the gospel of Christ. Make sure you live as a citizen that is loyal first and foremost to King Jesus, the king above all kings he he calls them to consider their identity to consider the good news of what jesus has done what is the good news of what jesus has done jesus dies on the cross for sinners he he dies in our place god punishes the god father punishes his own son for our sins Jesus dies for sinners. He's buried, and then on the third day, he's raised to life. So that anybody who would believe in Christ receives new life. His Spirit actually comes in us and grants us new life when we believe. We experience new life in Christ. Um, Our sins are forgiven. We're given eternal life. That his spirit lives in us. It's a life change that happens to the person who believes in what Christ did for them personally and commits to him. And so what he's saying here, that is the good news. Let your manner of life be worthy of this gospel, gospel means good news, of the good news of what Jesus did. So based on what Christ did, live a life that reflects that good news. Obedience to Christ springs from the good news. Now, please note, he's not saying, make yourself worthy. He's not saying, if you live a worthy life, Christ will accept you. That's not what he says. He says, give him the good news, which is the announcement that Jesus died for you and gives you new life. Based on that good news, that you're forgiven based on nothing that you did. That you're accepted based on nothing that you've done. That you're loved based on nothing that you can contribute. You're loved welcomed accepted because of what jesus did that's the news so receive that news believe that news and then live in light of that news he doesn't say make yourself worthy of that news that, that would be bad news if he said be religious enough so that god accepts you that would be bad news be good enough be moral enough Stop sinning enough so that God accepts you. That's not what he says. He says there's good news that God accepts sinners who turn from sin and believe in Jesus. So that's glorious news. Live like a citizen of that good news. Live like a person whose life's been changed by that good news. Live like a person for whom Jesus is not just someone to think about for an hour on Sunday morning but live like a person who really has been changed. Just like you think of your Roman citizenship as something that brings dignity and and identity into your life, so live a life identifying with Christ and the dignity and the privilege and the glory and the grace of knowing him. Allow that to determine how you live. You're citizens of good news, so let it show up in the way you live your life. Let the good news show up in the way that you live your life. Live a good news lifestyle that shows you belong to the king. You're citizens of good news. This means the Philippians are to live with Christ in view and not Paul in view. So check this out. Look at what he says next. Live as a citizen of the good news. Let your life reflect what Jesus has done for you, uh, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. So Paul says, look, whether I come see you or not, stand firm in Christ. What he's saying is, allow the good news to affect your life so that you live for Jesus whether I show up or not. You're not living for Paul. You're not living to impress Paul. You're living for Jesus. Reminds me of the Christian song in the 80s, hide the beer, the pastor's here. And and the idea behind the song was, hey... Uh, uh, you, you know, you act one way around somebody, and you act a different way around somebody else. So, if there's a religious person around, you, then you maybe you act all religious. And when the religious people are gone, then you uh, live however you uh, want to live. So he's saying, if I come or don't come, that shouldn't make a difference. Live consistently, no matter who is watching you. Why? Because you're a citizen of heaven. That's why. You're not a citizen of Paul. You're not a citizen of Paul's church. You're not a citizen of some particular church that's your primary representation. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of the kingdom. You are a citizen of the good news. You are attached to Christ. And so let him live through you and represent him. This is an issue for all of us, but I want to talk for a minute to young people. It's especially an issue for young people. It's an issue for all of us, but it's especially an issue for young people, teenagers, college students, who, who know the temptation to act one way in, in one crowd and then act a different way in another crowd. And that's what Paul's addressing here. Doesn't matter whether I show up or not. You're representing Christ. You know Christ. He's given you the good news. Let the joy of that good news change your life. Let the love of Christ change you. Let the presence of Jesus, let the peace of Christ change you. You've got something to live for. You've been rescued, forgiven for your sins. So allow that to shine through you. But young people in particular know what it's like to live one way and to talk one way when your parents are around, for instance, and to live and talk and to think and to act a different way when they're not there. It's exactly what he's going at. He's saying, it doesn't matter whether I come or not. You're not not primarily a representative of Paul. You're a representative of Christ, and of course, he is always around. So maybe around your parents you act one way, around some friends you act different. Maybe around church kids you act one way, and around school friends or work friends or Friends on the team you play on, sporting team or whatever you are into, wherever you work, whatever you do, wherever you hang out, neighbor neighbor friends, neighborhood friends, maybe you act differently around them. And so this passage has something to really say that you are, if you've believed in Christ, you're you're connected to Him. Whether Paul comes or not, whether your parents there or not, where the church folk there are not, does not matter. You are representing him. You are living for him. You have been changed by him. You don't follow Jesus because your parents do. You don't follow Jesus because the church people do. You don't honor Christ because that's the way they do it down at the church that I'm a part of. But once you believe the good news, Christ changes your heart and changes your life and changes your attitude so that you want to live for him. And none of us do that perfectly, but you want to live for him no matter where you are. Whether your parents there are irrelevant to whether or not you're obeying Christ. Whether the church kid is there is irrelevant to whether or not you're obeying Christ. Whether somebody else's parents are there is irrelevant. Whether the teacher's there or the coach is there or the boss is there. It's totally irrelevant because Jesus is there. And you're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of the good news. And he changes us to live for him. We follow him because we believe in him and he's given us new life. This is all about our identity. That's what he's addressing. What is your identity, Philippians? It's not primarily as a Roman citizen. So he's going to take that language, which is really important to them, He's going to take that language and say, and use the metaphor, you're a citizen of Christ's good news, so live that way. Listen, young people, if you only obey because of your family identity, as soon as you get some distance from your family, you go to college, whatever you do, as soon as you get some distance, your relationship with Jesus will be over. Because your connection was family identity. If your connection is church identity, as soon as your parents don't require you to go to church and you get a little distance from church, you'll leave Jesus. Because the church was your identity. What Paul is saying is the good news is your identity. The work of Jesus is your identity. What he's done for you is your identity. And he's using citizenship language to say you belong to him. You're subjected to him. His good news has set you free. That's what he's communicating. And this is so important. As a matter of fact, I don't know that there's any more important message. I don't know that there's any more important topic to talk about uh, in our church. I think about this a lot and pray about this. But it is so important. It is so important that you, as a young person, or as a young adult, that you identify personally with Christ that you believe personally in Jesus, or else it'll just be a phase. It'll just be some religious thing you grew up with. And you'll be the guy who's one day saying, well, I grew up in a religious home. I grew up in a Christian home. And and there are people, if the statistics, even if the most conservative statistics are to be believed... um, the, the, the trend is for kids to grow up in evangelical homes and then at some point in their early adulthood leave. Now, one thing the, trend, the stories don't always tell you is that they tend to return, frequently return, once they get married and have kids. But sometimes that's not, frequently, that's not the case. And so there's this trend to move out. And this is one of the reasons, is because there's never been a personal identity with Christ, as he's talking about here, and, as he's talking about here, there's never been persecution for the faith. That's what this passage is about. Paul says, your identity is with Christ. He is yours, so, he says, stand firm. Verse 28, don't be frightened by your opponents. Uh, verse 29, it's been granted to you uh, to suffer. Verse 30, you're in the same conflict that you saw ahead. So he's saying, your identity is in Christ, and if you're identifying with Christ, you will be persecuted. You will have difficulty. There will be suffering at some level in your life. And that's I think that's a primary reason that young people who grow up in a religious environment never embrace the faith, never take a stand for Christ, it never costs them anything. It's never proven and tested as a young person, and so when it's proven and tested as an older person, they go on. I read a fascinating quote by D.A. Carson on this. He's talking about this passage. He's talking about you're a citizen of Christ. He's, he's talking about persecution for the faith. And he says, the Western world, we haven't known much persecution, but opposition is likely to come. If you look around, the signs are in our culture. Opposition for faith is coming stronger and stronger in our culture. And, and he makes this point that uh, in, in large measure, um, It is the example of Christ and his sufferings that will empower us to tread his path. So it's identifying with Christ, identifying with his sufferings, and then experiencing our own that root us. And this is what he writes about. He's a a scholar writing on Philippians 1. He says this. Listen to this, especially young people. He says, Sometimes one finds a young man, say, who was reared in a Christian home, participated in Christian youth activities at home and at the university, married a Christian woman, and now cheerfully serves in his local Christian church. He may have even undertaken some short-term mission work somewhere, helping to dig wells in the Dominican Republic or working with the starving in Rwanda. Then he suddenly abandons his wife of 10 years and his three children and takes up with a pretty lassie to whom he has been drawn at work. Everyone is scandalized. Of course, the reasons for such moral failures may be many and confusing, but in some instances at least, I suspect that there is very little evidence that the young man or woman, as the case may be, in question ever made a practice of making hard moral decisions that cost him anything. Doubtless, his Christian family and home praised him at every step of his sterling pilgrimage. He made the right decisions, but they were scarcely painful or costly, because so many fine people were assuring him how wonderful he was. He did what he wanted to do, but he had not yet been tested by the kind of temptation that drew him to do something he wanted to do, but which he would resist simply because resisting was the right thing to do. He had not exercised the kind of faith that cheerfully makes self-denying decisions simply because following Christ demands it. Simply because it is right. Best thing that ever happened to me, as a seventeen-year-old kid, I I can remember this like it was yesterday. I, I tried to look this guy up on the internet recently and couldn't find him, but I was seventeen years old, and uh, and I told this kid in one of my classes about Jesus. And the need to follow Jesus and, and, and to give his life to Jesus. And this guy burst out laughing in my face. And he didn't just go, ha, ha, ha. He was obnoxious about it. He laughed loud where everybody could hear. And he just laughed in my face. Ha, 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 ha. He just went on and on and on and on laughing in my face. Best thing that ever happened to me as a teenager. Because, because I had to own something. I had exactly what he's saying. I had to be a citizen of Christ, a citizen of the good news, standing firm at that moment, not frightened by the opponents, engaged in the same conflict that you saw. Paul took a beating and was jailed. It wasn't exactly the same. Uh, it was a goofy 17-year-old laughing in my face. But when you're a goofy 17-year-old and a goofy 17-year-old is laughing in your face, it makes an impact. And it was one of the first times I ever had a, the Holy Spirit speak to me in power. And this kid's laughing in my face. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me clearly and brought up 1 Corinthians to my mind. And I just looked at him. I said, Andy, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And he just froze. Sort of freaked out. He didn't know what was going on at that point. Basically, I just told him he was going to hell. But he didn't. didn't (laughs) So it wasn't compassionate. It wasn't winsome. So maybe it wasn't the Holy Spirit, but I don't know. Anyway, I had that idea and I did, I said it, but it cemented it to me. It wasn't everybody saying, good boy, great, wonderful. Aren't you great? It was somebody resisting And we need resistance. There is no maturity in Christ without resistance. And the story that D.A. Carson says is someone who never matures in Christ because they never meet resistance. And when they finally meet resistance, rather than making a self-denying choice to honor the Lord and honor their wife, they make a selfish choice. And Paul is communicating to them, listen, your identity drives your obedience. Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus has filled you with his spirit. Jesus has called you his own. He has rescued you. He will take you to heaven with him. And there is this one little thing that following him in discipleship will mean taking up your cross daily. Following him will mean resistance in your life. Following him will mean some suffering at some point in your life. Following him will mean difficulty but it will be glorious because he will be with you and one day it will all be gone and you will be with him in eternity that's what paul is telling. maturity comes through resistance and that comes because of our identity in christ citizens of the good news live lives worthy of the gospel of christ so what does it look like to live as a citizen of heaven? What does it look like to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? We'll look at verse 27, verse 28. Whether I come to you or an absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. It means to stand firm. By grace we stand for Christ. We're not obnoxious, we're not rude, we're not self-righteous, we're not identifying with just some particular political viewpoint or some cultural viewpoint. Uh, kind of fundamental kind of a deal or whatever, uh, just, just have to fit into some little tight box of what it means. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about following Christ, standing for the good news of the gospel. And he says, we stand for Christ, we take a firm stand. We're not to be swayed by the world. We're not to be intimidated by the world. We're not to be seduced by the world, but neither are we to retreat from the world. We are to take a firm stand and we do it together. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Represent the kingdom, represent your citizenship in a humble, loving way by actions of self-sacrifice and love for others. Wave your flag is kind of what he's saying here. As citizens of heaven, we stand together We're all on the same team. And so he's telling the Philippians, you guys have to stand together. There's some selfish ambition. We'll see this in the next couple, in the next chapter. There's some selfishness. There's some selfish ambition. There's two ladies in chapter four. There's a cat fight going on. Two ladies are battling it out in this church. And he has to correct them publicly. And so the church is starting to have, it's a great church. Paul loves it. But it's starting to have some division. And he's trying to say, look, you guys got to stand together. There is an opponent coming at you. You're suffering like I am. And you guys need to be together. You're on the same team, church. You're brothers and sisters in the Lord. So stand together in the good news. Standing together. Live in unity together. And he gives two phrases for what it means to stand together. So, Back up here. We are to live as a citizen of the good news. Living as a citizen of the good news means standing firm together. Here's how we stand firm together. Verse, uh, Still in verse 27. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponent. So he says two things. Strive together. Paul is calling the Philippians to work together in Unity. There are real opponents to the gospel, so it's important that you strive. We oftentimes, to our shame, strive against one another. Paul says, strive together. See, one of the things we haven't experienced, we experience so much luxury at every level in this culture. And one thing that opponents do is they call people to press in together. When we don't have a common opponent, I may not need you. I can just sit back and judge you, think all things about you. I can act independent. I don't like you. I'll go down the street to some other church. And and so in an an environment where there's very little opposition, there's a lot of independence. There's a lot of independent-mindedness among Christians who don't see their need for one another. They're starting to see their need for one another, and Paul is telling them, look, you guys have to strive together. Don't face one another and strive as opponents. Get side by side and strive together. Now, they're not striving together to harm opponents. They're striving to, to convince the opponents of the love of Christ. They're not in a battle where they're, they're trying to harm those who oppose them. They're trying to be an example of Jesus to those who oppose them, just like Jesus was to those who opposed him. And so he's saying, guys, line up, get side by side. Just side by side. You're watching the World Cup? All the World Cup's going on? No, America lost. We're not watching anymore. But we watched until then, right? We're not really that international. Talk about nationalism and allegiance that goes one way. As soon as America loses, we, we turn it off. So I heard somebody say, we've never won one World Cup, but we've won all 49 Super Bowls or however many there's been. So that's... that's <laughs> we're so myopic, aren't we? So... Uh, But you know when there's a, uh, I I don't know much about soccer. This is not my notes. I shouldn't even go into a soccer illustration. I don't know the rules of soccer. But you know when they've got like whatever it is, free kick, and the guys are all kind of lined up together uh, in front of the goalie to block the goal. I mean, they are tight there together. Why? Because if we just scatter and stand everywhere, there's just gaping holes. But if we're going to face our opponent, we need to stand together. And so they stand, line up together. That's what he's telling them. We need to stand together in one spirit, striving hard to be together. This means that I need to work hard at living in unity with people that are different than me. I read the most fascinating thing this week about Philippians. Remember, if you weren't here last year, I'll give you a real quick overview. We studied how this church started a year ago. Paul went into Philippi and a church started. And the way the church started was amazing. He met a rich businesswoman, who had a house big enough that the church could meet in. She sold fabric, and she became a Christian. Then he met a demonized girl who was a fortune teller. She was a slave girl, and these slave owners caused her to tell people's fortunes because a demon could tell the future through her. True story. And so she would tell the future, and then they would make money. Paul cast the demon out of her so they had no money because they had no devil telling her what's happening. And so it was spiritual, wild stuff. So she evidently, she is freed, and presumably she becomes a believer. And then Paul is jailed for his faith, and ultimately an earthquake comes, and long story, but the jailer and his whole family becomes a Christian. So one thing we know about Philippi is that at least when the church started, it seems like it met in this rich businesswoman's house, uh, perhaps the slave girl was freed and, and participated, and the jailer and his family are Christians. And what I read this week, a guy said, it's very interesting. We kind of hyper-spiritualize the Bible and think, isn't that great? We see those people sitting around singing Kumbaya, holding hands in a circle, and they're like, nobody had any problems in Bible days. Then why is he telling people to start loving? Why, why is his big prayer in chapter 1, verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more than more. Why is he praying they'll love each other? Because maybe some people don't love each other. And someone made the point, I was reading this week, and just said, you know, you think any of those people had problems after they came into the church? You think some rich businesswoman who the church is meeting in her house might have had an opinion about how the church is run? She's not perfect at conversion. She's growing a little bit, a little bit like you and me. Think a girl that's been a slave and forced to channel a demon to make a living for the men that own her, you think she might have a challenge trusting people in her life? Like, especially trusting men? She wasn't saved if she's saved and becomes perfect. She's got baggage. And life is growing and maturing in Christ. You think a guy who runs a jail is like a touchy feely sweetheart of a guy, give everybody a big bear hug? He's dealing with criminals. And if one of them gets out, he dies. That, that's the penalty. You don't get demoted, you get beheaded. And so this is a tough guy. You think he comes into the church running the jail all his life and instantly is perfect? You think he didn't have any opinions? You think he didn't offend someone? You think maybe he was a little hard-nosed and then in one of the small group meetings, maybe he said something that offended somebody? Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe so. I think so. We We think these people are all perfect, and we came to our small group and somebody said something that offended us. Hey, the town jailer who's used to roughing people up, that guy's in your small group. And this girl with huge issues from her background, and the businesswoman, this is my house, by the way, she's there. You think anybody had any temptations and there was ever a need for someone to love one another? Absolutely. And that's why he says, you people need to get together. The problem's not the jailer. The problem's not the wealthy woman, and I don't know anything about her, but the problem's not her The problem is the enemy, and so you better strive together, he's saying. You're citizens of Christ. Get side by side and strive together for unity in the church. That's the first way we stand. We strive together in one mind. And secondly, we're not frightened by anything, verse 28, not frightened by anything from your opponents. This is a clear sign sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, verse 28. He says, stand together and... Together, don't be afraid of those who are in these days. Perhaps, you know, things like we don't know that people are being killed in Philippi for their faith like there are in many places in the world today. But for sure, you might lose your job. You might have your property, you know, hindered, abused, confiscated. Uh, You certainly would be a recipient of ridicule. You might be cut out of the family and out of the family will and the family gatherings. It might cost you. People might not buy your product or your services because of your faith. They're going to use someone else. So there certainly would have been social pressure and perhaps physical, maybe a guy took a beating for his faith, certainly could have been physical persecution at this time. There was for Paul. And he's saying, don't don't fear that kind of opposition. It's the same thing that I'm experiencing, because here's what happens. When you stand together, what you show your opponents is that God has saved you. Your salvation is from God. When you love people when they hate you, when you serve people when they oppose you, when you care for people when they don't care for you, when you are kind to people that abuse you, when you are asking forgiveness of people that you offend and sin against, even if they don't do that. When you make amends for the wrongs you have done to others, when there is a joy in your heart, no matter the difficulty, you represent Christ, is what he's saying. You, You show them that your salvation's from God. This isn't some religious deal. This isn't some game. This isn't just some moral code, like I'm gonna be a good religious person. This is the spirit of Jesus living in you and changing you like him, and it will show them their own destruction, It'll communicate to them, I don't have what they have, and I should listen. Wherever there has been persecution of the church, it has spread like wildfire. Always the opposite happens. Those who persecute the church, that they seek to quiet it, and it spreads like wildfire. Why is that? Well, I think one reason, it's the hand of God at work, but one reason is because people see the character of Christ in those who suffer. See the character of Christ. So he wants them to stand together. How do you stand firm? Strive together for unity. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened. Stand fearlessly, confidently. Verse 29, lastly, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer. It's granted. What's a grant? You ever heard of a grant? A grant is a gift. He's saying, stand together because it's been gifted to you that you should believe now that's huge. He's saying your faith in Christ is a gift. If you believe in Jesus, that is a gift that was given to you. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve. It. That's the good news. Remember, you're citizens of the good news. Jesus did it all for you. All for you. So if you're here today, maybe you don't know Christ, and you think what I need to do to become a Christian is to become a really good person. What I need to do is become religious. What I need to do is give my time and start praying and reading the Bible and giving my finances and serving those who are needy. None of that will make you right with God. What will make you right with God is believing in what Jesus did. That's why it's called good news. That's why it's amazing. That's why it's grace. And even the ability to believe what I just told you is the gift of God as well. So he said, it's been granted to you. It's been given to you as a gift for the sake of Christ. Not only that you should believe, but also suffer. Whoa, I was with you on the believing part, the going to heaven part, I like all that. But he said it's a gift to suffer. So he says, Paul says, it's actually a gift to you that you would represent Christ, that you would experience opposition, that you would represent him, that you would see other people meet him because of your testimony and your example in your difficulty. Engaged, verse 30, in the same conflict that you saw me engaged in. So they're having difficult time in their culture. They're facing a persecution that we don't face today in our culture. He wants them to know it's a gift. Suffering is a gift. You can face your opponents without fear because God has designed this for those who follow him. This is not a popular message. This is not a popular message. This is passage will I mean, I can't say it won't be on any Christian TV show, but most TV, especially if if, if we're requiring funding, is not going, this isn't popular. This doesn't bring in the funding. This doesn't bring in the crowds. To say suffering for the faith is a gift that God has given and that he uses that to display his glory. Living a life worthy of the gospel, not to earn the gospel, but because Jesus has given us the good news. Living in a manner worthy of the good news is a life that reflects the good news. It's seen in a church that takes a stand together, that gets along with people that are different, that builds together around the gospel and stands together fearlessly, proclaiming the loving message of Christ to a culture that does not know him that's what that's what he says that's what they are called to so we live with little persecution we, we feel great freedom as i said to live independently we feel very free to be super disagreeable because we can just take our toys and go home it's going to disagree with everybody that's just the way but in this kind of a context wow people are called to pull together and there's a, you see your need to pull together Opposition brings about maturity as we live as citizens of the kingdom. So let me ask you a couple of questions as we wrap up here today. Where is God calling you to let your manner of life be worthy? Where is he calling you to be a citizen of the good news? Maybe he's calling you to be a citizen of the good good news with consistency. Paul says, hey, doesn't matter whether I come or not, you're following Jesus, I'm not your Lord, he is. I'm not your king, he is. You're not accountable to me, you're accountable to him. So whether I come or not, it doesn't matter. I hope I hear that you still love him and that you're still walking. So maybe that's it. Maybe you say, it's my consistency. I don't live in integrity. Integrity means one. Like The word integrity comes around the word one. It means I'm a whole person. I'm not a, a fragmented or segregated person. I don't have my religious life, my work life, my family life, my social life, my hobby life, my vacation life, um, my internet life. It's not like I have all of these different lives. It's my whole life is lived as a whole. So I'm the same guy at church as I am on the job. I'm the same guy on the job as I am on the softball, softball team. I'm the same guy on the softball team that I am when I meet a person I don't even know or when I'm with my extended family visiting my grandmother. does not matter. Same guy, wherever. That's integrity of life. That's integrity, a oneness. So maybe let your manner be worthy, whether I come or whether I don't come, Paul. Maybe that's what the Lord's speaking to you today. And he's calling you to cry out to the Lord and ask for his help to strengthen you. And he's going to use people to come alongside you and let's be strong together. Let's encourage one another together. Maybe he's calling you to stand firm with the others. Maybe you say, yeah, that striving part, striving down at the church, I'm pretty good at that. I've been striving against a lot of people. No, striving side by side. Maybe he's calling you to strive with, not against. And you say, there's somebody I'm against that I need to get right with, and we need to strive together. We need to serve together. We're on the same team. And I I want to represent Christ together. Maybe you're in fear. Maybe your battle today is fear. You're afraid to tell someone about your faith. And again, I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about holding up signs. and I, I'm talking about living a genuine life and giving an answer for the reason that is in us and telling people the good news of Jesus. So maybe it's, I, I, I want to be bold. I want to say something to my school friends. I can't just go with the flow. I've got to tell them who Jesus is to me. Maybe I've got to say something to my workmate. Maybe I can't compromise in that job situation. I cannot be dishonest and be a representative of Christ. I need to be honest, and that might cost me my job. But I'm going to have to be honest. I'm going to have to commit to being honest and honest practices in, in, my, in my job. I'm, I'm going to have to do that. So maybe you need to talk to your boss about something. I don't know. So what is God calling you to let your, ma- your manner of life be worthy? Consistency? Standing together with others, representing Christ, not giving in to fear because of opposition? What difference would it make to see your suffering as a gift just like your faith is a gift? What difference would it make? Maybe you're suffering in some way today. What difference would it make to say, Lord, I believe you're going to use this to draw me closer to you. I believe you're going to use this because you love me and you want to make me more like Christ. I believe you're going to use this to help me what would that do to affect you today? Imagine a family of believers who live this way, confident and faithful even in suffering, living as citizens of the good news, living out the love of Christ in their community, representing the love of Christ in the community, standing together, people with different opinions on certain things, different practices in certain ways, different choices in certain things of life, but totally united on the message of the gospel and in serving Christ with their whole life, totally united in that. And so there is a unity among people who are very different. That communicates something. What would it be like for people to live that way in the love of Christ, consistently and with integrity, building together, standing firm together, and standing as a witness in a world that increasingly opposes the message of the gospel? Well, that's what Paul had in view for the Philippians. The way we do that is ultimately through humility and servanthood. That's what we'll look at the next couple weeks as Christ, mirroring Christ to our culture. But God calls us to be different in our culture, to be different, to be loving, to be faithful, to be like Christ. May God help us to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this good news that we are citizens of your kingdom and the good news. We thank you for our country. We thank you this weekend as we celebrate. We thank you for the many blessings you've provided for us. We thank you for the abundance and the freedoms that we enjoy. We are a free people. I can stand up here and say all of this stuff today without fear of being arrested or us all being um, hindered in some way. Thank you for the freedoms we enjoy, Lord. But we also want to thank you that our highest allegiance is to you, and we pray that we would be faithful to stand for you. We pray that you would give us grace to stand firm as a representative of Christ, that you would give us boldness, that you give us courage, that you give us faith, that you would give us love for others that supersedes love for ourselves. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.